0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear why two of the nation's largest reservoirs along the Colorado River have reached record lows.
1: Typically, this would be high water, and it hasn't really come up at all.
0: Plus, the Denver Zoo is gearing up to vaccinate some of its animals against COVID-19. We learn what this could mean for domestic animals in the coming months. And we explore how last year's wildfires are affecting water quality this year. All that and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. It's another hot and dry summer, and most of Colorado's western slope is under extreme to exceptional drought. Because of that, voluntary fishing closures are now in place for a more than 100 mile stretch of the Colorado River from Kremling to Rifle. Low river levels cause it to warm quickly, which stresses and kills fish. Kendall Backich is with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. She says this is the most extensive closure the agency has ever put in place for the river.
2: We've had two back-to-back low water years now. Um, We're in extreme drought conditions. Uh, Despite having some rain events, they're, they're fairly short in duration and they certainly aren't Uh, wide-ranging. They're just kind of spotty.
0: And they warn mandatory closures are likely if conditions continue to worsen. Overall, the Colorado River supplies water to 40 million people in the southwest. But a prolonged warming and drying trend has left the nation's two largest reservoirs at record lows. For the first time, a shortage will be declared by the federal government. KUNC's Luke Runyon traveled the 1,400 miles of the river to get a sense of how those who rely on it are coping.
3: The river starts on Colorado's western slope, where father and son Wayne and Brackett Pollard run cattle. Up on a sagebrush-covered hillside, we look down into the Rifle Valley, where the men use the river's water to grow hay.
1: Typically, this would be high water, and it hasn't really come up at all.
3: They list off all the superlatives that come with life in the West this year. driest, hottest, lowest, worst.
1: Last year was considerably dry. Maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier.
4: Our springs are starting to dry up, up on the mountain and everywhere. This dry spell
3: comes with the usual lack of rain and snow, and the relentless sun. And now a hot wind has arrived. Brackett says it's like someone is pointing a giant hairdryer at his pastures.
1: It's just like sucking the moisture out even more so.
3: Nearly all of the Upper Colorado River Basin is experiencing severe drought or worse. Tributaries are running low and hot. And without enough feed, the region's ranchers are looking to sell. The pollards plan to offload about half of their cows over the next few months.
1: When you're looking at a, a serious... Loss of equity in, in really just rural America, in the rural West.
5: So the first couple miles is going to be really choppy. Ready?
3: About 250 miles downstream, the river becomes a massive reservoir, Lake Powell, where Sherry Fasinelli and husband Randy Redford are vacationing. The reservoir fills Glen Canyon, a maze of red rock on the Colorado Plateau. The lake is headed toward its lowest point since it was built. Fascinelli veers their speedboat into a side canyon.
5: You know, places where you've boated for 20 years and gone flying over, all of a sudden, now there's big ri- islands and rocks.
3: A stark white bathtub ring on the brick-colored walls looms over us. The record low level means its dam is generating less hydroelectric power, and it makes for a hair-raising boat ride.
5: Plus, when the canyons get narrower, then you got to worry about other traffic more. So it's a little more nerve-wracking.
3: <laughs> An estimated 4.5 million people visited in 2019, spending more than $420 million. But this year, several paved boat ramps no longer reach the water.
5: So you've got the same number of visitors using fewer launch ramps. So you're gonna have longer lines, shorter tempers,
3: Further downstream, in a Las Vegas gated community, the Colorado River's water spurts out of a sprinkler and onto manicured grass, catching the eye of Devin Choltko, water waste investigator.
2: And there's too much water leaving the property at the moment. So we're gonna get out of the car, throw our lights on, and uh, document the spray and flow violation is what we call it.
3: Choltko works for the Las Vegas Valley Water District. She pulls out her phone to take a video of the offending sprinklers.
2: Water Waste Investigator 9393, it is Tuesday, June
3: 15th at 8.07. I Grass at like this recently got a death community? sentence. This year, Nevada declared it's so-called non-functional area. turf illegal, lawns that are only ornamental. Chultco's agency projects that nearly 4,000 acres of turf in the Las Vegas Valley will be ripped out over the next five years. Las Vegas already restricts lawns and new developments and pays homeowners to replace their yards.
2: So unfortunately, we, do, we are in a desert and grass is one of those high water use users.
3: But the Las Vegas area has kept growing during the drought, adding 315,000 people in the last decade alone. As the river keeps shrinking, demands have to shrink too. Otherwise the whole system gets drained. Conserving now means less pain down the line, Choltko says.
2: Um, So all of these restrictions have allowed us as a community to kind of keep populating. I mean, the, the population isn't going anywhere, you know, so we have to kind of accommodate to that.
3: The coming shortage declaration means another round of steep cuts to water supplies, falling the hardest on Arizona farmers. If reservoirs keep dropping, further reductions are coming to Nevada, California, and Mexico.
4: This used to be the riverbed.
3: Near the river's end, Jordan Joaquin, president of the Fort Yumaquichan Indian tribe, stands on its banks, looking out on what used to be the start of the river's expansive delta, now just a narrow channel. So
4: where are we standing today? If this was to be watered, this would be all covered with shrubbery, willows, cottonwood, as well.
1: So,
3: not far upstream, water is drawn off to serve customers in Los Angeles and Phoenix, and to irrigate crops, including local ones, says Tribal Council member Charles Escalani.
4: So that's why I always tease everybody when they're from back east. I'm like, when you're eating a salad in December, thank us because that's where it's coming from.
3: The tribe's share of the Colorado is part of a century-long list of legal agreements among those who use it. But Joaquin says in the past, tribes were largely excluded. When tribes were consulted, if that's what they call it, it's at
6: the very end. Decisions were already made.
3: The entire watershed is gearing up for a new round of policy negotiations. Perennial questions are being made more urgent. Can the watershed adapt to climate change? How will everyone get by with less? And Joaquin says, how can river management be made more inclusive? Water is very important to us. You know, water is
4: sacred to us. So the most meaningful thing is to be part of the negotiation at the table. Not the back table, not the side table, but at the table of discussion.
3: Because the answers to those questions will shape life in the West for everyone who depends on the Colorado River for decades to come. I'm Luke Runyon.
0: The Promenade Shops at Centera, part of a well-known outdoor retail center in Loveland, were up for grabs at a recent foreclosure auction. The property sits near the intersection of I-25 and Highway 34 and features a Dick's Sporting Goods, Best Buy, Metro Luxe Theaters, and a Barnes & Noble bookstore. But at that foreclosure auction last Wednesday, there were no bidders. So what happens next for the troubled property? For more on that, we're joined by Ken Amundsen, Managing Editor of Biz West. Ken, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Good to talk to you.
0: So fill us in on what led up to this point. Why were the Promenade shops even up for auction?
4: Well, just as a matter of history, uh, it's the second time they've uh, they've been foreclosed upon. And in this particular case, the the lender on the property foreclosed on the owner and the owner of the uh, promenade shops is a company called DRA Advisors LLC the lender has a a debt of uh, 87 million and of course it wasn't coming and there was no uh, they weren't able to cure the debt prior to the foreclosure auction and so um, the public trustee runs the operation and then to uh, run this through and find a new owner for the property
0: Describe the scene that took place Wednesday morning a week ago.
4: The public trustee has these auctions, and they're currently in-person auctions. They will be going all digital coming up soon, I think in August. But in this case, it was an in-person auction where there's a you know, half dozen people in the room in addition to the public trustee and they cite what the debt is and the property and people who have an interest can cast bids on it. And if there are no bids cast, then it goes to the lender at the amount of money that is owed for the property. So in this case, uh, when she called that particular property forward for bids, there was silence. There was nobody in the room who was, was bidding. There were people in the room who had interest in the property, but the sense is that the amount that was owed, the $87 million, was was too much for the property. Worth That was more than what the property may be worth. Otherwise, they would have bid, I think.
0: Were bidders expected in this? I mean, did that come as a shock?
4: Well, uh, in conversations before the auction with the public trustee, she did not expect anyone to bid. Prior to this particular auction, there was the the lawsuits that had been between McWinnie and uh, Pogan McEwen. uh, They were the original um, builders of that particular mall, and uh, there were some settlements in that and uh, some large amounts of money changing hands, and I thought that perhaps there was some cash in the marketplace that might be applied, but uh, obviously people who invest in properties aren't going to spend way more than what they think the property is worth. So I think that was what it came down to.
0: We've heard for the last few years about the struggles of the traditional mall. It, It sort of felt like these outdoor retail centers like the Promenade Shops had been immune or at least less vulnerable to these pressures. I'm wondering what all of this means in the overall landscape of retail.
4: It is a, a changing world out there. And you might recall that uh, a month or so ago, McWinney purchased the Foothills Mall in Fort Collins, and that was a $40 million deal. But that mall has elements of the outdoor type mall as well as an indoor segment. And so McWinney believes that there is still value in in retail in the mall type setting. The question is exactly what that uh, setting can be. And in fact, after... The auction, I was talking with McWinney, the representative who was there, who told me that you know, they don't know for sure how they're going to redevelop the Foothills Mall. And they're seeking input on that from the community and, and uh, businesses in that area to see what might uh, make sense. Because there is some formula that'll work there. It's just a question of what it is.
0: What happens next for the Promenade Shops?
4: Well, the title will pass to the, the lender Wilmington Trust N.A., and uh, banks and trusts and so forth, they're not in the mall business. Uh, they're in the lending business, so they will try to market the, the property and sell it. They may have to take a loss on it, but at some point, some uh, dollar value, someone will have an interest in buying it, and so that's probably what will happen over the next several months is uh, they'll figure out what that price point will be and uh, you know find that buyer.
0: Ken Amundsen is managing editor of Biz West. You will find links to their reporting on the Promenade Shops and much more at KUNC.org. Ken, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: Anytime, Aaron.
0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Up until now, almost all the focus on preventing the spread of coronavirus has been on humans. But now, scientists are looking at preventing the virus in animals. In the coming weeks, the Denver Zoo will begin vaccinating some of its animals against COVID-19. KUNC arts and culture reporter Stacey Nick is with us now to explain a bit more about the process and what this could mean for domestic animals. Hi. I know there have been a few reported cases of wild animals in captivity Contracting coronavirus. Last year, the Bronx Zoo reported uh, seven tigers and lions had tested positive. But how big of a problem is this really?
5: It's actually about as rare as you might think. While we know that transmission between humans and animals can happen, according to the CDC, transmission between species is just really not common. It's pretty rare. That said, there's still a lot we don't know about coronavirus, especially in animals. Uh, Mammals appear to be the most susceptible to it. There have been a few outbreaks at mink farms around the world, including in the United States. And we've also seen a few cases in zoos, you know, like the one at the Bronx Zoo.
0: Has the Denver Zoo had any cases? Luckily, no, uh,
5: not at this point. Officials there told me that from the beginning, they've had a pretty strict protocol for staff to keep the animals safe. The adding of vaccinations is really more a matter of taking every precaution available.
0: So what could you tell us about the vaccine that the animals will be given? How does it compare to the ones humans are getting?
5: The vaccines are actually pretty similar in a lot of ways. It's a a two-shot dosage from the veterinary vaccine company Zoetis. And the rate of effectiveness is also similar to that of the human vaccines, between about 80 and 90%. And it was also developed with both wild and domestic animals in mind.
0: Really? So does that mean I should get my dog vaccinated for COVID? It it will be an option. Uh, I spoke with Dr. Scott Larson,
5: the Denver Zoo's vice president of animal health and head veterinarian. And he told me that there has been a very, very small percentage of domestic cats and even smaller percentage of dogs who have contracted COVID since the pandemic began. And that number is especially telling, considering, you know, just how much day-to-day close contact people have had with their pets, you know, during periods of lockdown and isolation over the past year and a half. The goal is really to eventually have the uh, vaccine available to pet owners, but based on what we currently know about the virus it It isn't likely to be something that becomes mandatory. Here's how Dr. Larson explained it.
6: It's like any type of medical care, it's a risk benefit type of thing. It's. I don't anticipate it's going to be like rabies vaccination, which is a big public health issue. That is required in many parts of the country in terms of getting your dog in particular licensed is you have to have that rabies vaccination. I don't anticipate we'll get there. Uh, it will be an option, and people will need to make up their own their own minds on whether they feel like there's enough of a risk there that they do want to get that vaccine or not.
0: So how will they be rolling out the vaccines?
5: Well, again, it's a a lot like ours. They won't have all the vaccines at once, so they'll start with the most susceptible populations. You know, the first wave will be primates and big cats. And these are the animals that have shown not only the highest likelihood of contracting uh, the virus, but also for getting really sick from it. And once they have the second batch of vaccines later this summer, they'll move on to other mammals. Not every animal at the zoo will be getting a vaccine, though. Animals such as the zoo's, you know, hundreds of fruit bats aren't likely to get the shots because their contact with humans is very minimal. And, you know, vaccinating such a large number at
0: once would be challenging, to say the least. I can only imagine. (laughs) Now, for folks visiting the zoo, is there any concern about contracting COVID from the animals?
5: No, mainly because visitors won't get close enough in proximity with the animals. But also, again, the risk of transmission between species is really very slim, and the zoo is continuing with all of its COVID safety protocols. This is really about protecting the animals from, well, us. Those big cats at the Bronx Zoo that you mentioned earlier, they were infected by an asymptomatic staff member. Again, here's Dr. Larson.
6: This is really about protecting them versus mitigating a public health risk that it's, it's going to get into our animals and then pose a risk to our keepers, to the public. It's, that's, that's not true of every single disease we may have to think about or deal with, but certainly with COVID, there's you know just magnitudes more cases in people than have been identified in, in animals, whether they're pets or wildlife.
0: So sounds like this is really just the next step in the fight to keep everyone, human and animal, safe from coronavirus. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you. Stacey Knitt covers arts and culture for KUNC. You can find out more about the Denver Zoo's efforts to vaccinate the animals at KUNC.org. was a record-setting year for wildfires in Colorado. Two of the largest fires in state history, the Cameron Peak and the East Troublesome Fires, charred hundreds of thousands of acres and thick smoke blanketed parts of the Front Range for most of the summer last year. Beyond the obvious damage to forests and structures and the impacts to air quality, last year's wildfires are threatening water supplies this year. Here to talk more about this is Jill Oropesa, Water Quality Services Manager for the City of Fort Collins. Jill, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank
2: you very much for having me today.
0: Let's start with just a broad overview. What kind of impacts can wildfires have on water and water quality?
2: The primary impact they have is to the, the land cover in within our source watersheds that provide the water supplies that we depend on for our drinking water and um, agricultural water supplies. And so any of those changes at the scales that wildfires impact these watersheds, what we see is a major transformation around the way that water moves over and through these watersheds. And in a burned landscape, that can look like uh, tremendous amounts of ash and sediment being eroded from the hill slopes into the river channels and inside tributary streams. And what that does is it really transports that material and deposits in places along the river that impact not just the quality of the water supply itself, but also can create impacts to physical water supply infrastructure and damage other buildings or private properties that are in the pathways of these debris flows
0: and depositional areas. And I'm curious about the relationship. It sounds like a a lot of the ash and other debris from last year's fires can get washed into water sources like the Poudre River, for example. We've also had a lot of flash flooding just in the last 10 days over Fourth of July weekend. I'm wondering how this is related to wildfires like Cameron Peak and East Troublesome. After a fire, is it more likely that you're going to see flash flooding?
2: Absolutely. Without that vegetative cover and the roots that are associated with those plants and trees, Um, the soil becomes very unstable and very susceptible to erosion anytime um, there's any type of rain event. And so as we enter into our summertime periods where we see frequent thunderstorms that come down with some pretty high intensities at times, those storms create a lot of erosive capacity and really have the ability to mobilize a lot of sediment into the river. So not only is there the potential for those rainstorms to move a lot of ash and sediment, but there's also um, little to no infiltration into the soil because that absorptive material like the duff layer under the, the forest floor, that has been effectively removed by the fire. And so all of the water is, for the most part, moving over the surface pulling along with it a lot of that sediment and ash. And those can come down really rapidly in really high volumes that we typically wouldn't see.
0: Let's talk about what this looks like here in northern Colorado. How are you seeing 2020 wildfires impact water in Colorado this year?
2: We started out our early season anticipating some impacts due to snowmelt runoff. And what we had seen is that we actually experienced very little impacts from snowmelt. The intensity of those types of events or that um, process was just not significant enough to create large events, although we did see a little bit of degradation in quality. But as we have moved into more frequent thunderstorms during the late spring and early summer We are seeing not just the magnitude of those storm events, but also the frequency of those storms. They're really driving a lot of that material and changes into the river, and then that results in changes in the water quality.
0: Knowing that wildfires and drought just unfortunately seem to work hand-in-hand affecting water, I'm wondering what you're watching for this summer in terms of water supplies, water quality, and those dual impacts.
2: We're seeing most of the areas in the western part of Colorado being uh, impacted by moderate to severe drought. And we've been really fortunate to date here in the Poudre River Basin and the Big Thompson Basin to be in somewhat of a, a better position in terms of drought conditions We're we currently are um, have adequate water in this area. And so that has alleviated some of the pressures that a potential drought could create when overlapping with the effects of a fire. So we're, we continue to really watch um, water supply availability uh, throughout the Colorado Big Thompson system that was impacted by the East Troublesome Fire, as well as what the water conditions are like in the Poudre and South Platte Basins. And if we continue to progress throughout the summer and we see drought conditions change, that will really inform our ability to utilize both of our sources and will impact our planning efforts around water conservation and other measures like that.
0: Jill Orapeza is the Water Quality Services Manager for the City of Fort Collins. Thank you so much for speaking with us today.
2: Thank you, Erin.
0: That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear about two planned missions to Venus and the role Colorado scientists will play in those explorations. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.